0: Welcome to the Maharatcast. I'm your host, Rob Ramey-Smith, coming to you from London. This episode is a conversation with Maharat Ruth Friedman, who's a member of the inaugural class of Yeshivat Maharat. She currently serves as the Maharat at the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. Maharat Ruth's responsibilities include overseeing the conversion program, supervising the operation of the community mikvah, directing adult education, and providing pastoral counseling, and so much more. She's a proud member of the Washington Board of Rabbis and sits on the executive committee of the Board of the International Rabbinic Fellowship, of which she is also a member. Maharat Ruth is also a founding member of the Beltway Vod, which we'll discuss with her later in this episode. I'm particularly excited about this episode because if there was an informal big sister, little sister program at Yeshivat Maharat, Maharat Ruth definitely would have been my big sister. As you'll see in this episode, her unique outlook on life, her sense of humor, and her ability to always just keep things real is something that drew me in initially as a first year student. And it's something that continues to amaze me as her friend so many years later.
1: I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, um, the daughter of a Hillel director, um, and on a college town, college campus. Um, And uh, I am now the Maharat, which means, well, I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what this means, Um, at OHM, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. I would say that, like, I, I didn't really ever... Have my heart set on clergy, um, even though I grew up surrounded by it because of my dad. That was something that girls didn't do, right? In orthodoxy, just there was no model for that, uh, and so I never, I just, I never even occurred to me that that was something I would do. And then it took until college, through college, and then at end of college and senior year when everyone around you has a plan, whether it's grad school or getting a job, and I was just kept looking around and saying to myself, none of this sounds interesting and I I I don't know I just felt I really like none of it clicked you know you just I felt very um ungrounded especially as compared to everyone around me it was you know pre-med pre-law they all had a plan I had no plan and not only did I not have a plan but I didn't have a desire for anything a drive for anything and then um sometime in the latter half of my senior year of college my friend Shana Weiss told me that she was gonna be studying at the Drisha Institute for Jewish Education for the coming year, um, because they had like year-long programs to learn more. And at that point, I'd already been dabbling in this world of like open orthodoxy. Um, Colve was meeting in the Barnard Columbia Hillel at that time, so I knew about them. And I said to myself, well, actually, that sounds great. That's an into this world that I like. It's something to do. I will figure out how to support myself. It was just, it was that anchor that I needed to feel like I had a plan and like I knew what I was going to be doing. And that turned into another year. And then at the end of that year, of that second academic year, meaning in March, 2009, Rabasara was, had the conferral ceremony up at HIR and they announced that they were opening Maharat. And it was just very, very clear to me. Um, that that was what I wanted to do, and I couldn't articulate what I wanted to do with it. Pulpit sounded awful, um, you know. or I didn't want to work in a Hillel. I didn't really want to work in a day school, but I knew that like this was this was my world, and this were these were my people, and um, and it just like it was that click that I've been searching for my whole life.
0: Tell me what the yeshiva was like when you started. When I when we started in the Beit
1: Midrash, there were just like two or three of us. Um, and then Abby and Rachel on the computer, um, though they didn't really join, you know, for Club Roots at it was just for sheer. And what was it like? It, you know, it didn't, it didn't feel as, I think, as scary um, as some people expect it would. We still, I had my friends who were at Coba Bay, which helped a lot. So I felt that camaraderie, even if it wasn't like physically present, because we were, you know, we were in a different building at that time. We were at Drisha. And of course, we had the Drisha people there. Um, so, it didn't it? You know, wasn't like sitting in a in a room in an abandoned office. You know, by by myself or with two other people. I did wonder, you know, who are the other students going to be? Are they going to find more people? What's it going to be like? But it it really, I think, after feeling like I said, I think the best word I used is ungrounded. Um, feeling untethered, unanchored, um, for all of college, and now feeling that I had my place, even though my place was just like three women or so I don't even remember exactly who Um, and a computer screen it still felt better than than my previous iterations
0: were you worried about the future getting a job I
1: wasn't when I started I wasn't really worried about job security I think that because I didn't really have a concrete professional vision I just I figured something would work out Um, I had faith that that something would work out and thank God I was right um I think that I was much more worried about security in my personal life. I was single when I started, and I didn't know if I would be able to find someone who would date me. <laughs> um, and yeah, just like, what did a life look like when, when you're standing out so much and you're the subject of controversy, and like someone puts your picture in Bus is nice, or one of those websites, you know? Um, would anyone want to go for that? And it was actually Rachel who said, Well, but you wouldn't want to marry someone who wouldn't marry Maharat anyway, right? And I just said, well, yeah, you are right. You know, and so I I tried to view it instead of as, you know, a scarlet letter on my forehead, rather a filter. And uh, that's, you know, that's how I felt about it. And lo and behold, um, after my first year there, I met Yoni, my husband. And the first thing he found out about me was I was in the Maharat program. And he thought it was really interesting and asked me more about it. And that was that.
0: So it worked <laughs> Was it weird getting new colleagues as the program grew? it always It felt weird to have
1: more women joining the program on the one hand, it was really exciting, obviously, like it, we had people there and great people and people who diffused tensions and um, organized elaborate lunch orders. <laughs> And you know I'm talking to you, um, and uh, <laughs> and um, just brought new energy. I think it was also it was it was just it was a tense time in general because we didn't really know where the program was headed and what the end game would be. And so every time you introduce someone new, they have their own thoughts um, and beliefs about that, and then you have to say, well, okay, but they're part of the shiva, and maybe they disagree with me about this particular point, or. Maybe they're going to Shabbos meals with people and saying this thing, and I believe that thing, and now what's the image of the yeshiva? And so I think that that contributed to some tension, but at the end of the day, growth is a good thing. So you just, you know, I knew that this was a positive thing, even if at times it was challenging.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to start with Rav Shmuel? You two have this amazing dynamic, but I want to know how it was when you started out.
1: So I definitely think that the hardest part of my transition to DC into my shul here was everything that happened in my head. Like on paper, everything was great. The community was super welcoming. No one once said anything weird or even god forbid nasty to my face you know i just i felt like on paper i had one of the easiest transitions like i just walked into a welcoming warm space with no hostility and a rabbi who really did understand what it meant to make room for me right who who um you know just would like how from me in my head it would be I felt like I was being thrown in the lion's Then from from his perspective I'm sure it was like here like go do this there's a funeral great like go do it you know there's a brisk get you should get up and say something um so I had it great in that respect um like I said the problem was in my head um and all of the just tremendous anxiety and uncertainty um the irony part of the irony of my my job being in a shul is I didn't grow up in a shul I grew up in a Hillel with a few members of the community, but mostly college students. And then I get to a shul and I'm like, I realized one day, well, I don't know what a shul is. You know, I, mean, I went to one when I was in my twenties and in, in New York city in Washington Heights, but still that's, that's a, that's not a shul of families with people of different ages. You know, it was much more, um, it was much more homogeneous and uh, not exclusively homogeneous, but not, but in many ways. Yeah. And then I got to shuls like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what shuls are. Like, I don't know what their purpose is. I don't understand like sanctuaries with big singing and 300 people in them. It was just like this big mystery. And I also just had a tremendous amount of anxiety. Um, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing, and that therefore that meant that I was just trying to like do everything Shmuel did, um, and try to be like Shmuel. And for anyone who knows Shmuel, he is um, people liken him to the Energizer Bunny. He doesn't stop moving or doing things. And so I, I am a much slower person. I process things like I just I I'm, I just move at such a different pace. It took until I think it was maybe April of my first year there. Um, where I was talking with Dasi Fruchter, um, whose parents were in my show at the time. And she just said, well, but you don't have to be like shmuel. The community didn't hire you so that they could have two shmules. The community hired you so they could have a shmuel on a roof. And I was just like, oh, oh, you're right. Like, I need to focus more on being myself. Um, And that was like a big light bulb moment. Um, And it still took a long time for me to really grow into that. Um, a classic example of, you know, the, working with male, I don't, I don't want to pretend this is just a male-female clergy problem, it's probably also personality, but um, I went to chakras every day for the first, and mincha Mariv, um for the first maybe 10 months, right, and it's at six thirty in the morning, uh, during the, it was at six thirty in the morning during the week, now during the pandemic, it's much later, um, and eight thirty on Sundays, and then, of course, there's Shabbos, and I just, was like I'm sorry what I have to be somewhere every single day of my life at 6 30 in the morning and like I could not handle it I was exhausted um it I just in it, it was I just found it so overwhelming whereas Yoni my husband grew up like this and he, for him this was normal It was actually really enjoyed it um and then around I think it was like May or June or something maybe a little bit later I um I had another miscarriage and my body was all out of whack and you know, the doctor said, "Well, I, I, sat, I kept saying like, what can I do to try to, you know, straighten things out?" Well, are you getting enough sleep? I was like, "No, <laughs> I'm up at 5:45 every day to go somewhere." Like, no, I don't get enough sleep. And she said, "Well, you need to get more sleep." And so I just said to him, "I was like, I'm sorry, I just I need a break from minion." Um, and he was like, "Of course, whatever you need," and um, and was totally understanding and great about it. And I uh, basically never went back. Um, weekday mornings, at least. Um, it just, uh, cause then thank God, you know, I start IVF and that's its own little circus of early morning appointments and then thank God, thank God I had a baby. Um, and once you have a baby, you can't go anywhere at 6:30 in the morning, especially because Yoni, my husband was trying to leave the house by, you know, 7, 15 in the morning to go to work so that he could come back in time for me to then be able to, you know, go back to work in the evenings, right. To teach or whatever it was. And so it just was very clearly just didn't work. Um, but I think that, you know, if I had a been a man and, or B had more minion responsibilities, I don't think I would have been able to do that. Now I don't mean that in a negative way. Like God bless his soul. She loves going to minion every day. So I'm extremely lucky that it wasn't like I was saying to some, a colleague, sorry, you have to step up and do more work because I can't do it. It's like, he was already there anyway. Um, I was going because it's a sign. Well, clergy should be a minion, which like on paper, of course I agree with. Um, but then you have kids and you realize, well, actually, this is really complicated. And then I think the extra factor that I don't want to reduce to just male female, because I think that's not fair. um, but certainly for me, as someone who was not I grew up with only sisters, um, totally not socialized into minion every day, that is not something I ever would have thought about. It just felt like a very overwhelming thing to take on as an adult, and I just I couldn't do it. So, um, I think, and, and that, that carries on till this day. Um, I am not a reliable presence at unit whatsoever at all. I made it in time for Marv last night and that was like a miracle. Um, but it's just, I've got two kids, I've got family responsibilities. I've got a husband who has, you know, a job in which he's on the phone with other countries at all hours of the day. And I just, it just can't be a priority in my life. Um, and I'm sorry to say that cause I like being there to see people and I like being there to hear people say cottage, but it just, It just doesn't work. Um, If it was at 10 in the morning, great, but it's not, right? Um, It's just at prime family life responsibility time. And so it's taken me many years to make peace with that and not constantly feel guilty. I still feel guilty about it all the time. But I try to at least like accept that that, that's just the reality of my life right now um, and to forgive myself and not to look at the clock every day when it's minion time and feel guilty and haunted by the fact that I'm not there. On one of our first days of quarantine um, a couple weeks ago, yoni and i both had two o'clock phone calls on monday his mine was a weekly staff call and his was with the usaid coronavirus task force so guess who got the three-year-old during their phone call me right and of course like who was who would i do a favor to if i was just pretended if i acted all like important about it and said like oh i can't watch the kid have a staff meeting like no I muted myself when it wasn't my turn to talk. And so they wouldn't have to listen to whatever Disney movies playing in the background. But like, you just gotta own this stuff. Like, yeah, we're all harming each other. One of us has, someone has to bite the bullet and just own life as it is, right? And we feel all this pressure. I don't know if it's different where you live, but certainly in America to like, you know, be obsessed with work all the time and act like you don't have kids and you don't have life responsibilities and you don't need to like go for a walk and stretch your legs because you can't sit on Zoom for eight hours a day. You know? Yeah. I'm just taking the approach of like, you know what, forget it. Amy Schumer is my biggest role model in that respect. I'm obsessed. Someone asked me recently who my female role models are, and I thought about it for such a long time, and I was like, you know what? It's Amy Schumer. That photo, I'm not on Instagram, but that photo she posted of herself in the post C-section, because I also do C-sections, like cotton underwear with the pad and the bra, like just pushing a stroller, and I was like, yeah, man. Like, you are my soul. Like, I just
0: love you so much. One of the first projects you worked on when you were like your big things you took on was the mikvah. Um, can you tell me? Did it start when you were there? or You came into an existing process, and also, why why did the shul decide to build a mikvah? And what was it like to take that on?
1: So, this, so me walking into this mikvah was a funny experience because it was conceived of before I got there and like planned before I got like the construction was planned, and then very shortly after I arrived, the construction began, and then I was. Well, first I should back up and say with a mikvah, there's no like determined, predetermined open time. Because once you finally finish building it, you then have to wait for it to rain so that it can fill up. And that could take like a week, if it pours, or it could take like a month or two months or whatever. I don't remember the exact timing. So you're just sort of in this limbo position. So my role for the mikvah ended up being, here's a physical space, you turn it into an operational mikvah everything from, okay, what supplies do you want to have in the room? Um, what kind of towels, you know, like, oh, there's a great, there's a towel sale at Costco, let's, let's do it, to hiring attendants. Um, but all of that can only happen, like, once you determine what is the so-called mission of my mikvah, right? What it, What is the um, purpose of my mikvah? Who am I here to provide for? What is this space? Um, and I knew that, you know, I had... I had done, I had been to a Mayim conference or two. I had done the Immerse NYC um, uh, mikvah attending training. So I knew, I was definitely well aware of like, you know, the sort of newer mikvah worlds of openness and expanding the role of mikvah, et cetera. Um, also I've been teaching a ton of call classes. And, and, and so I sort of felt like I had my a, a handle on this. Um, I ended up hiring Rachel Feingold as a consultant for our mikvah um, because she had done this a few years prior in Chicago. And that was great. And like, I'm endlessly just indebted to her for all of her help. I could not have done it without her for a second. And then there was hiring mikvah attendants, um, which is interesting um, because some people want their mikvah to be like a traditional mikvah with their classic, historic mikvah lady, um, you know, from some fromy me place who, who gives you that for me experience. And other women are running away from that and only going to the mikvah because our mikvah does not impose that that strength, that um that angle onto it. And so that was hard. Um trying to figure out how to please everyone was hard. But of course the hardest thing um was the the I don't want to say it was unspoken or an elephant in the room because it was very present. Um, that our mikvah, by total coincidence, opened about three months after Barry Freundel was arrested in 2014 for spying on his congregants in the mikvah with the cameras. And opening a mikvah would have been tricky enough. Adding this on top of it made it a process that just required attention to every single detail. There was not a word that went on a page that was not carefully thought through um, and vetted by me and and just making sure things were as sensitive as possible. Um, and, and I can, you know, sh- happily to share more ab- about that because essentially what, now I'm, I should also add a caveat that I never met him. Um, and so anything I say about him is based on what other people have told me either about him or about their own experiences that were affected by him. So I want to add that as a caveat. Um, but, you know, he he was the rabbi of the shul downtown, and if you are a DC person for more than five minutes, like you live downtown first, um, and Davin either partially a cashier or totally a cashier, his, the shul that he had been working at, before moving to my community. My community is kind of the second step. Once you're ready by a house, you can't like afford or fit downtown anymore. And so people had a history. They had, some had a history with him, some maybe less so. So many of my congregants were people, women who converted with him and experienced abuse from him at that time, or at minimum, um, doing air quotes on minimum, um, had used the mikvah for conversion purposes. And so we had women who he was their rabbi, women who he was their entire religious guide, and women who then realized that you know when he encouraged practiced immersions, it was because he wanted to watch them naked in the mikvah, and so. The religious repercussions were enormous, and I should also say are enormous, because believe me, the effects are still felt today. And that's why I wanted to, to talk about it um, today, not to, you know, it's always easy to talk about a scandal, to get attention, and to sensationalize a story. But that's not why I talk about it. It's not my story. Like I said, I never met him. I never went to that mikvah. It's not my story. Um, I talk about it because I think that we often... Don't pay enough attention to the lasting effects that trauma and power corruption have on the victims. Um, And that's why I talk about it, because anyone who doubts that this crime was horrifically serious on so many levels should know that there are women in my community who stopped using the mikvah altogether once they learned this who stopped using it for a while and then finally came back, but will only come back if there is no attendant there because they just cannot handle the idea of anyone else being in that space. People who stop being religious altogether because their number one model for religiosity and orthodoxy and from Frumkite was this person. So that's just something to know at the outset. Now, how that affected the mikveh, well, it... It became this, like, <laughs> it was It was only a year into my job, remember, and this was my first job out of school. So I'm, like, 28 years old, um, and, yeah, 28 at this point, I think, um, trying to take on this, like, massive, massive emotional trauma and emotional undertaking. And so the way our mikvah is constructed is that it's, like, one long hallway. At the center of that hallway are two, two mikvah pools. Well, in the center center are the borough where the water collects, and there's two mikvah pools and then branching out in each opposite direction. There are two prep rooms, branching out two lobbies, and then an entrance on either side, if you can kind of visualize that in your head. Now we call it the men's side and the women's side, because part of the mission of our mikvah was to not be an exclusive space. It was to be a, a mikvah, I still, the mission of our mikvah, the purpose of our mikvah is to be a space for anyone who wants to use it for any reason. So it said, okay, well, you have two sides, great, men and women, right? Men are never going into the woman's space, like come hell or high water, I don't care if the world is ending, a man is not walking into that woman's space. That is a direct outcome of this Frondell situation. There is a lock that is only accessible from the women's side so that men who are using the mikvah, they, they can't, not only do we say don't walk there, but now they physically cannot access the other side. Um, the, then it was, you know, it became a big question of, well, okay, there's two entrances. One is better lit, but kind of by definition, better lit means more public, right? It's closer to the street. You can see someone walking into there if you're looking closely. What if, you know, some, what if someone's like coming to Minfa, it's a minion, and they see like a woman going into the mikvah? Well, the other entrance is more private however private also means darker right and we're in dc like it's not the safest place in the world so which entrance do you use what are you more comfortable with um you know and, and it just became all of these things where there's just all these competing tensions of wanting to be a warm and welcoming space but also one that protects people's privacy um and you know and it, it those really it is a very very fine dance to try to balance those two things, if not straight up impossible. And what I mean by impossible, i am not throw your hands up, but I had to accept pretty early that it was not going to be possible for everyone's needs to be satisfied 100% of the time. We actually ended up like adding, um, when we used to do our our mikvah appointment intake, we've changed it since then. We added, you know, you could check off. Do you prefer that your attendant is not a member of OHAVE? Like, in other words, do you want anonymity when you come to the mikvah? Do you prefer that she is a member of O'Have? Do you not care? You know, I was trying to make sure that like, no one walked in feeling at all compromised or uncomfortable. And how many mikvahs can say, no one who comes here ever feels uncomfortable? You know, very, very few, but I really like tried so hard. I I mean, I would like to say I succeeded as much as possible. I hope there were definitely mistakes. There were definitely, you know, there are bumps in the road, but I really like tried to just maintain that spirit as much as possible. That's now turned into like, there are some women who know that, you know, if they want to go alone, especially if they want to go during the day, like they don't want anyone else, whether it's COVID or just, this post friend I'll post me too. Like I, this is my thing, this is my own thing. I don't want anyone else near me. Um, they can just like swing by my house and pick up the key, you know, and like just let themselves in. Um, obviously I want to know when they're going because God forbid someone should slip in and, and fall. Um, you know, but like I, I it's, it's, um, I see myself really as the role of the mikvah is doing whatever I can do to enable women who want to use it to have an experience that is not as enjoyable as possible, but as comfortable as possible. And I think that that's a really important distinction. Um, I am not here with like, you know, flowery, lovey-dovey, like, oh, the is beautiful, it's amazing, you gotta break. No. If you want to go, I know that like a big percentage of the women in my community are going because they feel like they have to, um, and they would feel too guilty religiously if they didn't. And it's my job to like make them to minimize all of it. And I'm sorry to say it in such a cynical way, but I think that that the cynicism is here to stay. Um, And I don't really think that there's anything that can undo it. And I don't think
0: that time heals those wounds very well either. When she started, like she said, she was only 28 years old, had been married for a few years, not really a mikvah veteran herself. I wanted to know what it meant for her personally to try to heal those wounds as a young, new clergy person.
1: Oh my God, I had no idea what I was doing, first of all.
0: Um, <laughs> I don't know.
1: It was really intense. And like, I, you know, I didn't have the camaraderie of, like, I wasn't I wasn't a member of, I wasn't a participant in that pain, right? I hadn't lived downtown. I didn't know him. I was a solid Five, seven, ten years younger um, than most of the victims, and so I, I guess I felt like I tried to be there for people. We had a few meetings in my house just to process, um, but again, I, I know that my ability to be there was limited. And some women ended up forming like side groups, and even bringing in the like representatives from the local um, domestic abuse organization to to you know to help facilitate conversations. And I, I mean, I guess I felt like the best way I could help with the healing was to build this mikvah that would like, God willing, never allow anything like that to ever happen again, and would be a women's space and their space. Um, you know, I, I part of the abuse that happened downtown was the control um, that he exerted and that women did not have. Um, and yeah, and I, I just wanted people to feel like they had total control over their experience here. Did
0: it make you, did you feel, I mean, you had done the training, but like, would you have said going into this job, like Mikva was going to be a thing that became a focus of yours or this kind of put, like put that on the table for you and, and left it there?
1: I think coming in I was more interested in Mikva. Um I think I was just more interested in, as you and I discussed a minute ago, I'm very into talking about things that are not usually spoken about. I don't think, yeah. I don't mean that. I hope in my head, I hope it's not certainly how it comes out in some like classic oversharing, over way. I'm just more about like being real and authentic. And so I think mikvah was sort of an outlet for that, right? I mean, you talk about sex, you you come in and you you know it, it's this sort of this intimate space, and the more you can invite people into that, like the more open it is. Um, I really changed my mind a lot about that. I think post downtown, post friendel, post me too, also, where I just realized, you know what? This is complicated. I don't really feel like if someone's coming to me in a crisis, I can ever suggest anything to them to do as a possible solution that involves them taking their clothes off, um, you know, and, and and as much as we can try to reduce the power dynamic that the mikveh presents, and as much as you know, I try by saying, it, yeah, go alone, go ahead, whatever you want, go ahead during the day, during at night, I don't care, do whatever you want. It still is, like you're still getting naked um, and entering this religious space, and I just thought, you know what, I'm not touching this. Um, someone wants to go, great, I'm here to make it happen. I'm not here to, um, to preach um, and to proselytize. And that's really where I've landed with it. And another thing, also that I should add, you know, it was hard also to build a mix that, that I wanted to focus so heavily on women's privacy, but then also be an open space where, like, you know, if someone is non-gender binary conforming, like, shoot, you know, I've now amplified this male-female differentiation of space to protect the women, but in doing so, I've excluded anyone who who doesn't identify
0: as either one of those. This episode is sponsored by Ta'amod, Stand Up. Ta'amod asks, Do our Jewish communal organizations reflect our Jewish values? How do we address harassment, inequity, and harm in such a way that creates lasting change? Ta'amod is making revolutionary shifts in Jewish organizational culture by utilizing Jewish values to provide holistic trainings, consultations, and resources. With an acute understanding of the unique dynamics and needs of the Jewish community, Ta Mode's approach addresses culture from a proactive rather than a reactive stance. Ta Mode offers workplace trainings through a Jewish lens, as well as a robust resource bank of materials and vetted referrals in support of Jewish organizations and congregations. Catalyzed by the Me Too movement, Ta Mode Stand Up is committed to building accountable and psychologically safe workplaces, organizations, institutions, and communities.
1: I think it's actually like, I think that this mikvah to me represents so much of the good that needs to happen um, in our little world of orthodoxy, um, because it's saying, okay, these spaces that have traditionally, of course, been religious spaces um, are controlled by the more right-wing vods and all of them and rabbis. That's not really what we want. And instead of just being beholden to those people for our whole lives, just, well, let's just make our own, you know? And our mikvah is, was like, mikvah USA oversaw the construction, you know, it is, like, Sotmir approved. <laughs> like, it is totally kosher. And the kosher status is not in any way affected by who uses it. That's all just politics. And so, you know, the classic example of conversion, the vast majority of the conversions done in our mikvah are not orthodox conversions, their reform, reconstructionist, conservative, unaffiliated, because we are one of two mikvahs in town that will host an un, a non-orthodox conversion. The other one has been closed since March. Um, we've had so many, I mean, I can't even, probably had at least 20, 25 people convert in our mikvah since June when we opened it up for conversions. Um, and I'm getting requests from rabbis of other denominations all over um, you know, the city to use it because we're the only one. Um, and I'm very and they're always so grateful. It's like embarrassing how grateful they are that is an orthodox synagogue. we're laying use our Mcluod's. sad. but, yeah, I mean, it's just to me that's like a great thing. And it's saying that like we have our beliefs. you feel differently. so what? We're all Jews. Like, come use our space, you know, like of course, um. And I really, I just think that it's so important, like, and not that like the kids in our shul know that that's what happens here, but it's so important to me that that's part of what we do is that we're there. We we just participate with all sorts of people, um, you know, and, and Shmuel and I also started a kosher certification in DC a couple years ago for similar reasons. It was like, it's impossible for all these weekend places to get certified because the costs are exorbitant. You have to close on Shabbos, you have to get, you know, all the time. And it's just, it's, it's, it's not realistic. Uh, It's not possible. It's like, well, instead of being beholden to other people who don't really share our religious values or religious standards, even though we're all, you know, orthodox, why don't we just build our own? And it's not done with any spite um, or anger, you know, or or maliciousness. It's just like, well, this is silly, you know, (laughs) like, let's just build something that reflects our own values. Um, And that's what we did. And I think that's a great approach, um, especially because they're, is I think a growing number of observant young and some old Jews in this country who are spiritually homeless. um, Don't really have that leadership to turn to. I think don't really feel like there's an institution that speaks for them, a leader that speaks for them. And I'm not saying we can provide all of that, but here's a good model for just saying, well, then let's just do it. Let's make our own.
0: Having attended quite a few conversion immersions, I think a lot about the population of women who go to the mikvah knowing that they will be watched by men. The women who immerse in front of a bait din Even though this woman is covered by a sheet or a robe, she's still standing in the water completely vulnerable with three men standing over her. I wanted to know how they deal with conversions.
1: Yeah, so as short in the few days after the Ferndale thing erupted, um, we and I convened a meeting with all of the people who were in our conversion program at the time um, to get together and talk because uh, you know that's terrifying. <laughs> um, and and it did come up about the the immersion. And I think at the time I don't remember. I don't want to say I don't remember what the shul practice was at the time. I don't think I'd been there yet for a women's conversion. Um, and so, yeah. And but I remember there was this convers this really interesting back and forth between Shmuel and one of the the women who was in our program at the time. Um, and she was saying, and, you know, he was like, don't worry, you can't see anything. I think maybe he said, you know, we use a sheet and no one can see anything. And she was like, but I'm still naked in the water knowing that you guys are there. And he was like, but don't worry, like no one can see. And she was like, no, but but I know I'm naked. And I, I sort of like interrupted and I said, I think what we're, we're, what we're dealing with right now is two fundamentally different ways of seeing the same situation, right? Where the men are like, don't worry, we can't see. And you're like, but I'm naked, and you're right there, and that is very uncomfortable and very weird. Um, and so what we did after that, we actually um, commissioned or whatever uh, um, a chuba from Rev. Jeff about, um, you know, can can it happen that that a woman witnesses the immersion, and then you just crack the door so the men can hear, you know we say kosher in here, the splash of the water, et cetera. And that's what we started doing since then. One nice thing about um, the co- since COVID is that because our space is very small, I said to all of these um, rabbis, you're more than welcome to host your conversion here. However, the Beijing may not enter the building. There can be only one other person there who's witnessing the immersion. And like you have to do the bathing on Zoom or in the parking lot or whatever. There's just no space to legally have everyone there, let alone to wit- have everyone witness the immersion. You're literally standing on top of each other in the hallway because is in a very narrow space. Um, and they're like, yeah, sure, no problem, totally fine. And what most of them have done is do the baiting in advance and zoom. And then the person just comes to immerse, and it's not this whole stressful thing, right? You're not showing up with like your wet hair to meet with the baiting and, you know, then immerse and like be naked and put your everyone waits while you get dressed again. Like it's just, it is like a doctor's appointment on steroids without a doctor, you know? Like it is just, it's just a series of very tense, uncomfortable things. And if we can just say, you know what, like, Let's just make Mikfa the app, like the last little stage, but not the bulk of it, at least not the focus, the central space of it all, um, I think is, is just great. Now, I haven't seen that done for an Orphex conversion because we haven't had any yet. But I, so far, I like what I see.
0: As we're closing this interview, I wanted to circle back to one thing that I've been thinking about. Anyone who knows me knows that I love female comedians. So I had to ask Maharat Ruth about her Amy Schumer comment from earlier in this episode.
1: When I was, I was interviewed a couple of weeks ago, um, and the person asked me, like, do I have any female role models in my life? Um, like in leadership positions specifically. And, um, you know, I thought about like, who are, who are the women I look up to? And I realized that the number one person who I look towards as a model of how, like to, to lead my own life in my position. And, um, is Amy Schumer, uh, which is probably a very unexpected person to say, um, but I think she is someone who who you know is, is certainly more um, crass than I am <laughs> in public, but someone who who I think really sees the problems of the world and of w- that women suffer in the world of feeling like things are, aren't allowed to be spoken about. Women can't be their real selves. Um, you know, we, we all have to pretend like, you know, we all are a size six and, and just all, and, and motherhood is just beautiful all the time and all these things. And she's just like, no, no thanks. I don't really think that like, that's a good way to handle it. I'm just gonna get up and like, take a picture of myself in my C-section underwear and talk about how miserable this is, but also not in a way that drags everyone down in a way that like brings humor to it. Um, and I think then elevates the experience. Of it um, by being real about it and still finding the humor in it, and you know that that's a a way that I try to to model myself um, and be authentic in my leadership, which is to like to say you know if uh, um, I'm frustrated with one particular thing you know to say it if I'm having a hard time with something to say it um, and and not in a way that makes it my personal process base, not in a way that is like oversharing and making anyone uncomfortable, but just in a way that is saying like. Why are we all pretending, you know, like we have this under control? Why are we all pretending like we can go back to work six weeks after having a baby or all this? Like, it's really hard. I'm having a hard time. Um, You know, there was one time, so my second son was born November 11th. And so there was um, one of our, my parents had like a big Hanukkah party. um, And so Yoni and I dragged like our little son Ezra and the baby with, and um, so I guess he was like maybe five weeks, four or five weeks old. And someone said, like, so how are you doing? And I was like, miserable. This is like really hard and it's terrible. And it was just like, it's so nice to hear you say that, you know? <laughs> and I didn't start crying in the middle of the party. I was just like, said, it's really hard. Like, I'm not really enjoying this life very much. You know, I miss you guys. I miss my life. Um, and this is like, it's just, it's hard. Um, and I think that, you know, people appreciate being able to do that. That someone who's just can talk like that
0: thank you for listening to this episode i hope this conversation leaves you feeling as inspired and invigorated as it did for me again if you have any questions comments or feedback please reach out to us on maharadcast at yeshivatmaharat.org